what I want to do this uh, morning is I want to kind of give us a little bit of a reminder of some of the things that we covered or some of the big ideas and uh, talk like try and focus us on one big thing that I think Mark, leading up to this point, has been trying to communicate to us. Um, and so hopefully we're all okay with this. It might be at some point a little bit teachery, if that's okay. Um, but hopefully uh, as we land, it will help us have some kind of understanding of where we've got to now. And, um, and my hope is as we land, it will help us think about how this applies to, to our own lives. Are you all okay? Can we do that? Good, let me make sure I'm okay with my notes. So, what have we learned? Well, the, the book starts with um, you know, this is the gospel of Jesus, uh, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's how it opens. And so right at the start of the gospel, we get this introduction. Mark is going to tell us about Jesus, and he's going to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah, which means he's the coming king, and uh, he is the Son of God. And so throughout this narrative, we're going to learn about the king that has come and that the king is God himself, God's own son. The, and uh, you know, Mark begins to tell us this story. But what he tells us is he's beginning to tell us about an alternate kingdom. Uh, you know, what was Jesus' kind of first message? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark is telling us that the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has come because the Messiah has come. Jesus has rocked up. And uh, what Mark's wanting to tell us is because Jesus has rocked up, everything has changed. Because Jesus has come, everything has changed. And uh, so the story that. Mark is beginning to tell us is the story of the alternate kingdom. It's, uh, it's not per se the kingdom of Israel as the story unfolds. It's not the kingdom of the Roman Empire. It is the kingdom of God that has come. That is the story that Mark is telling us. He's telling us about this alternate kingdom. And the message, repent, Repent is not so much about, oh, I feel bad about my sins. You know, like I'm having a bad day. I feel really bad. I'm going to repent. Repent is not that feeling of feeling guilty or that feeling of feeling bad about your sins. Repent, the word is a, comes from a Greek word, metanoia. And the word metanoia literally means this. It means to be walking in one direction to recognize that the direction you're walking in is wrong, to turn around and go in the right direction. Repentance means to change, essentially. It's, it's, a, it's about change. It's, it's kind of like, I use this illustration 
back when we were talking about this, but it's about like Google Maps. You know, that person on Google Maps, I don't know what voice you have, everyone has different voices that you've chosen, but whether it's a guy or the lady or an accent or whatever you've chosen. But you know, on Google Maps, you're going down the road and then all of a sudden you go past your turn off and it's like, turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around. Repentance in one sense is what happens when the reminder, when something goes on inside of us that's that's saying to us, hey, you're going in the wrong direction. You recognizing that and then turning around. But more than that, what Mark is telling us is that repentance is not just a change of direction, it's a change of allegiance. Allegiance, the idea of allegiance, is a really, really big idea, not just in Mark, but in all of Christianity. The idea of allegiance is, is this, it's, it's the idea of who do you give your, like, Allegiance to who do you recognize as the one in authority? So, a kingdom, for example, is the the jurisdiction of a kingdom extends to wherever people recognize and give authority to the king. That's what a kingdom looks like. The kingdom of God is the place in which the people have given their allegiance over to the king, um, given their allegiance over to Jesus. And the call, the call of Jesus and the call of Mark and the call of the disciples and the call of Christianity for the last 2,000 years has been this call, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's been this call, come and give your allegiance to Jesus recognize that the things you are giving your allegiance to now are not the true and legitimate kings. What we need to do is recognize that, turn in the opposite direction, change, repent, give our allegiance over to the true king, to Jesus. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the Messiah has come. Repent, the king has rocked up. Can you recognize him and will you give your allegiance to him? This is the story of of Mark. And then we we get to a a number of different passages where the, in one sense, the authority of Jesus is being questioned. Uh, we, We talked about the kind of six stories and this is the one that's ending. The stories where people come and they ask Jesus a question. Uh, You know, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus, who are you that you have authority to forgive sins? Jesus, why are you eating with uh, tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, we fast and John the Baptist's disciples fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Jesus, why are your disciples eating on the Sabbath? You know, the kind of questions that we've heard week after week. And they're questions that are, in one sense, questioning the authority of Jesus and at the same time, revealing the nature of the kingdom. But in all of that, there is this question that Mark keeps on posing to us. And it's the question of allegiance. Who is your king? What is your king? What have you given 
authority in your life? And it is the question of whether you will give Jesus authority in your life. And so what we see is I try to create a diagram. It's a bit of a crazy one. So this is me trying to be clever, guys. Doesn't happen often, but uh, I'm trying, yes, so give me a break. Is um, what we see is Jesus is actually, there's many different things that we give authority in our lives. Self, I mean, self is like, Self is the, the king of the West, which is, which is essentially like live your truth. You know, do whatever makes you happy. We, we say those things, we're like, oh, you know, only if it makes me feel good, I'm gonna do it. Like whatever phrases we use, but they basically express that our king is ourselves. We are the kings of our world, you know. Um, self, culture, society, religion, family, these are all, and there's other things, as well, but these are all kind of things that have authority in our lives. What Jesus is saying, and I'll try and ex- explain this a little bit more before we have any major objections, but what Jesus is calling people out on is he's saying to people, hey, I want to have ultimate authority in your life. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, God himself is calling us not to give authority to anything else other than him. He's saying, come to me, move from into my kingdom, not the kingdom of self, not the kingdom of culture, not the kingdom of South Africa, not the kingdom of our denominations and religions or our families, but come into the kingdom of God. That is, come into the space in which Christ himself will be the chief authority in our lives. But in reality, what that looks like is it looks like this, is it's not about us coming out of, you know, when, when Jesus starts his kingdom and what we see in Mark, he's not trying to create a new land, a new boundary. and you, These people are existing within families. They're existing within society. They're existing within the spaces in which they're at. And so we see one of the tensions of Christianity is this tension of without and within. Uh, you may have heard people say this, we are, um, we are in but not of this world. We are in this world but we're not of this world. And uh, uh, they that phrase comes from a, a phrase in John where Jesus prays about uh, him not being of this world. And, um, and so there's this tension that we are both within self, obviously. We are within culture. We are within society. We're within our, our practice of, of how we do church here. We are within family structures. We are within different groups and workplaces and and things like that. We are within, but there is a call by Jesus, not just to be, not just to be within those places, but for our, the place that we give our true authority to be, to be outside of those spaces, to be Christ himself, if if you're tracking with me. 
I, that within with that phrase, it's a phrase from the book The Great Gatsby, and it's Nick Carraway talks about this tension in The Great Gatsby. He says this, he says, I was both within and without the culture. I both looked as an outsider on what was going on and experienced as an insider some of what was happening. It was within and without. And there's part of that is like the tension of every Christian. We are within all of these spaces, but we are also under a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. Um, sorry, this is complicated. We'll try and make it a little bit simpler just now. But what that looks like in reality is not us just coming out of, like that arrow was a little bit of a, a probably a bad reflection. What that really looks like is that Jesus and the kingdom of God exists over and above all authorities. He is, as the scriptures say, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. What that means is he is the one who has authority over all other authorities. And so while there may be authority in culture and in society and in religion and in all that, he is the one who exists above all of those things. And we see that tension. We see that tension if we go back all the way to the point where the leper gets healed. The leper comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you are willing, you know, make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. And then what does Jesus say to him? He says, go to, you know, go to the religious leaders, go to the, the high priest and go through the, the ritual of cleansing that, that was then. What is he doing? He is the ultimate authority. He's declared them clean. And then he brings them back into a space in which they're living in. He's like, I'm calling you clean, but hey, if you want to, you know, if you want to exist without being an outcast, you should go to the high priest and get yourself clean. So, you know, there's, there's this within and without tension of, of Christianity. Christ himself, the ultimate authority, declares the man clean and then tells him to get involved in the, the kind of day-to-day -day practices of that time that would have meant he would have been seen clean by society. Uh, does that make sense? Whew, so much going on. And the same is, there's a story we haven't covered yet, but there's a story where the, the Pharisees come and they try and trap Jesus. And they try and trap Jesus and they say, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And it's like a tricky question, because if he's the Messiah, you know, like, and he is the authority over Caesar, why would they pay tax to Caesar? Like, they're trying, to, they're trying to trick him, they're trying to catch him up, they're trying to see whether he's a true uh, Israelite, or, you know, whether he's part of the ones that are going to rebel against uh, this oppressive Roman rule. It's a very tricky question that they're asking Jesus, and then Jesus what does he do? He says, hey, give me a denarii. Give me a Roman coin. He takes a coin and he shows him the coin and he says, whose face is on the coin? And they're like, Caesar's face. And then he's like, well, give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? It's, it's like quite a radical statement. He, in one sense, is submitting himself to 
that authority. Give to Caesars what is Caesars. And then he shows his true authority. He says to them, but give to God what is God's. What is Jesus saying? By holding up the coin and asking them whose image on, is on that, he's saying, he's saying to them, he's reminding them of that very idea of whose image is on something. Who's, where is God's image is essentially what he's saying. Where is God's image? You are God's image is the question. Because we've been creating God's image. So he's, he's showing himself to be the ultimate authority like this. Hey, you know, see all this money? Just give it to Caesar. But what I want, what I really want is I want you. Because on you, I have put my image. Like your ultimate allegiance is to me. He is both showing the tension of being within and without of being within and being without. Pay your taxes. But our allegiance is ultimately to Christ. Is that okay? Have we got there? Can we get to the story quickly and uh, try and make sense, wrap this up? So here's the question that this story, the final story in this kind of scene poses to us. And um, it's the story of this, is when do we make a scene? If we are both within and without, if Jesus is our ultimate uh, king, if he's the one who we are aligned to, when do we make a scene? When do we rebel? When do we show our allegiance to Jesus over self and religion and state and culture? When do we rebel, essentially? Or, probably the better question is, when does God rebel? When does God make a scene? When, and this is Jesus making a scene. What we've seen in the, in the first five stories up until now, what we've seen is Jesus is kind of like innocuously going on with his day. He's just doing what he does. And someone stops him with a question. That's what we've seen in the first five stories up until this last sixth story. Someone stops him with a question. Jesus is walking along and a leper cries out, Jesus, if you are willing, make me clean. You know, they stop him from what he's doing. Then they, you know, Jesus is, calls uh, Matthew the tax collector and he's just eating with them and they're having a meal and they vibe. And then the Pharisees break into the party, which is a terrible thing. You never want Pharisees breaking into a party. It's gonna ruin the party. But they break into the party and they're like, Jesus, why are you eating with tax collectors? He's like, I'm just trying to have my food, you know? And, uh, but Jesus is going on with his day and then they break into his kind of normal routine to ask a question. What's different about this story, this is why the whole narrative in Mark is about to change. What's different about this story is Jesus creates a scene. It's a, 
you know, it would have been the Sabbath day, as we heard, which means they all would have been in the synagogue, like church, would have been like a church service, and there would have been a normal routine. But Jesus, Jesus sees this man with a shriveled hand, and it says he gets up, and he's the one who poses the question this time. The question is not posed to Jesus. This is Jesus now turning the tables at this point. He is going to pose the the question to him. It is like Jesus is deliberately wanting to stop the service and create a scene. He is wanting to interrupt things. If you think about it, Jesus could have healed the guy before the church service, like he could have. It was Jesus. He could have healed him the day before. He could have done it afterwards. He could have waited till the next day. I mean, it's Jesus. He could have done it whenever. But Jesus waits for a specific moment, and in a specific moment, he gets up, and he's about to create a scene. And this scene is the most absurd scene that we could think of. Like, if you think about it from a side, from 2,000 years on, the scene is not that crazy. It seems like wildly crazy. But for them, they might have been like, yo, this, something's going. But for us, like, it's wildly crazy if you think about it. Like, Jesus is going to get up and he's going to heal someone. And all of us are like, that's great. That's awesome. Amazing. We want Jesus to come and heal. And then people want to kill him for that. Like, have, have you thought about, like, how wild that is? Like, hey, you're healed, we need to kill that guy. Like, how did they get there? So Jesus is not just creating a scene, he's creating a very dramatic scene. Like, it's very dramatic at this point. This is not just like, oh, you know, Exo and I have an argument and we part our ways and we like agree to disagree and we mates and we go to life group on Tuesday. This is not like this. This is like me and Exo, we have a bit of an argument and Exo's like, I'm gonna kill that man. Like, this is my life's mission. That guy is coming down. And that is what happens. This is why the narrative turns at this point because as Jesus turns the questions on them, he's beginning to reveal something really, really radical. He is creating a scene. And the question is, in one sense, when do we create a scene? Or when would God create a scene in our own lives? When would God interrupt different spaces in our lives to create a scene to reveal something of the true nature of his kingdom? And here's the question that Jesus poses. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? That's the question he's going to ask. And obviously, the, the answer is pretty obvious, hey? Which is, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Like immediately right now, we all know the answer to that one, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good, to save life or to kill life. I mean, I'm not sure anyone's struggling with what the right answer is there. I don't think anyone reading Mark is struggling with what the right answer is there. But what happens in the story, what Jesus really highlights 
And what becomes really radical is the people that are angry with Jesus for what he's doing on the Sabbath are the very people whose intention it is to kill, to do evil. And Jesus' very intention is to do good, to save. The very people that are guarding the Sabbath are the very people that are doing what is evil on the Sabbath. The people who are meant to be guarding the intention of the Sabbath are the people who are actually desecrating it. And their anger with Jesus, their anger with Jesus over their perceived inappropriateness of the Sabbath is like unwarranted, it's evil. Jesus poses this question, you know, which is lawful on the Sabbath? We all know that answer. Everyone knows that. There's no struggle with that question. But Jesus is highlighting something. And this is like so important. He's highlighting something. And it's something about the nature of the kingdom of God. And that is... What did Vukile say? The Son of Man is the, the Lord of the Sabbath. But he said, before that verse, Jesus said this. He said, he said um, the Sabbath was, man was not created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. These, these sub-authoritative institutions were created to serve the good of people, not for people to serve these sub-authoritative institutions. So when we talk about society or culture or religion or self or, you know, like they are in one sense serve for the good of humanity. Uh, Paul says this, he says, the entire law in Galatians 5, he says, for the entire law, the entire law, the whole purpose of the law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus creates a scene when an institution, an authority, begins to exploit rather than to serve. When an institution uses its authority to oppress rather than to free. When an institution uses its authority for control rather than love. Because the full purpose of the law is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. The full purpose of any institution under God is to express love for neighbor. The reason why we have laws in society is ultimately to help society live within flourishing. That is the, the purpose of societal laws, is human flourishing. Purpose of culture, purpose of all of this is for the flourishing of the people. But what happens is those authorities become oppressive. They become tyrants. And they begin to seek power more than to serve out of love. 
Jesus radically challenges the Pharisees at this point because their view of the Sabbath is about them remaining in control and in power rather than helping a man who desperately needs to be healed. Jesus, we remember about Sabbath last week, Jesus gets angry with the Pharisees because their view of the Sabbath at that point is more about controlling the activities of people than about serving the desperate needs of people. So his disciples are hungry. The picture is portrayed that they're probably desperately hungry. They eat on the Sabbath. What happens? The Pharisees freak out. How can you do this, Jesus? How can you decide? Jesus is challenging them because they want to remain in power rather than serve, rather than love neighbor. Jesus makes a scene, and he makes a scene in our lives sometimes, and he wants us to make a scene whenever sub-authorities try and exploit, enforce their power over the flourishing of people. That happens all the time. All the time. Through law, through culture, through family sometimes. But the call to Jesus and the call to his authority is the call ultimately to love God and love neighbor. Let me try and make this a little bit more practical and then we're close. So sometimes this is universal. Like what that means is, is sometimes there are some things that are universally wrong that I think Jesus has an issue with. So some things where a society or a family or a culture or whatever can be exploitative and that is always wrong under all situations. And I think Jesus creates a scene for that. Apartheid is one of those things. I think Jesus would have created a scene for the evils behind the old South African society. Um, And then sometimes that's specific. So I think of myself, um, when I was young, I was radical, and uh, I would do all these uh, crazy radical things, we're laughing about it um, this morning, but I was on varsity, and oh, get up and start of lectures, and uh, you know, invite people to these meetings, and we'd have these meetings, and then we'd pray, we'd pray in like the most central public space, on university, in hindsight, I think it's so crazy. Like, we used to pray, and we used to pray aloud, like really loud. Out, almost outside the university, UKZN library up there, I don't know if, if you're studying at UKZN, there's a chessboard there. Then there were like 25 of us, and we'd be around that chessboard, and we are praying loud. I don't think we cared about what anyone thought, we, but we were like radical. We're going to do this thing. And 
in my radicalness, I remember at this one point I had to take life insurance, and I had to take life insurance um, because um, I was on a student loan, and they require you to take life insurance if you're on a student loan, so that if you die, you know, they can get their money back. And so I had to take life insurance, and um, and so I'm sitting there with the people doing the life insurance, and. Uh, the person asked me, so when you die, who do you want the money to go to after the bank's taken everything that they want, you know, that you owe them? And I was like, hmm, I'm radical. I love Jesus. I wanted to go to the church. And, and that was like my immediate thought. So I put down there Red Point Church, you know, what was then Victory Faith Center. And uh, so I put down Victory Faith Center, like whatever money, when I die, after you've, like, Banks taking their money, you can take it there. Now, what I did seems very generous in one point, um, but what I did was evil. I'll tell you why it was evil now. It was evil because of the specific situation that I was in. There's this, there's this, there's this um, story that Jesus tells when he interacts with the Pharisees, and he interacts with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees talk about this idea of Corbin, and this idea of Corbin is this, is that you can isolate some of your wealth and make some of your wealth religious, means that whatever this section of your wealth that you've declared as, as Corbin is no longer duty bound to family or to, to society or to anything, it is sectioned off to be religious. And people would use that religiousness to look important, to find favor with the Pharisees and what. but they would also use it to get out of responsibilities. To get out of responsibilities to, to the poor, to society, to their families, etc. They would declare something Corbin and that Corbin would absolve them of responsibilities that they probably should have carried. For me, if, uh, if any of you know my family, like one of the things that you would know is I was raised by a single mom. My mom had no pension. My mom still has no pension. But, you know, <laughs> that didn't change. But so I was raised by a single mom. My duty bound, the, the, the most righteous thing that I could have done was given that money to my mom. I was part of a wealthy church the church was five, six hundred people. At that time when, when, when I bequeathed or whatever the money is, what it, when you put it down there, at that time they were sitting flush with really big bank accounts. They had no problems with money. Me giving it to the church would mean nothing. But what I had done is rather than serving the good I had served my religious, righteous, self-righteous self. I had done what was evil. Ah, Jesus would have made a scene. And he did make a scene at one point. I had to go change that because, you know, I heard someone preach in Corbin or something. I heard it read in a commentary I can't remember. And it was like the weight fell on me of my own realization of how selfish I was, like how unrighteous I was. 
There are specific things that don't apply to everyone. For some people, giving all their wealth to the church would be so much more righteous than giving it to their families. For some people, they have so much wealth in their families. They don't need any more. But in our instance, there could be very specific things. It may be a specific cultural practice where in this instance, it is less loving to the people who are sitting in front of you to exercise that practice than it is to exercise the practice. It may be in society where the laws of society, most of the time following the laws of society are loving our neighbors. But there becomes a time, a specific instance. It's like when you're driving 150 down the road to get your wife to the hospital when she's pregnant, when loving your neighbor at that point is maybe breaking the law. I think what Jesus is calling us to is to live in the tension of knowing when it is good to submit to subcultures and when it is good to resist I'm not sub-authorities, and when it is good to resist sub-authorities, because the tension of the kingdom means at some point in our lives there will be a specific situation where you are called to rebel, where you are called to make a scene, where the most righteous thing you can do in your life is to stop and to make a scene. In these five stories, we have the leper. The leper was a social outcast, the person who was unclean, the person that when you approached them, they had to shout, unclean, 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 to make sure that you didn't come in within a certain proximity, otherwise you would be declared unclean. What does Jesus do? Jesus breaks the societal norm of the time and he welcomes the unclean in. The paralytic, the sinner, where Jesus forgives sins to an uproar. The tax collector, the political outcast, the person that actually lived within no community was the tax collector. Jesus eats with them. The fasting, those who were stuck in a view of religion that is more about ascetism than it is about celebration. The feasting, a story where religion is more about power than about love. Jesus is calling us to allegiance to him and showing us that allegiance to him ultimately looks like loving our neighbor. Jesus is essentially telling us that he is the ultimate good for human flourishing in the world. And that at some point, some, everything else will become oppressive. Sometimes it's our own families. Even when we're from good families, can sometimes make decisions that are more about control than they are about 
love. But Jesus is calling us to himself and showing us that ultimately in him is where human flourishing will ultimately exist. Because Jesus is not just the one who calls you to give up your life for him. He is the one who lays down his life for you. Jesus doesn't just call us to love our neighbor. He is the one who ultimately does love his neighbor and calls us to the same. So I want to ask us two questions as we close this section. Because this section is about trying to train our minds in one sense, reframe our thinking to remind ourselves that as we exist within society and culture, as we exist within families and religious kind of spaces, these spaces are ultimately to see the flourishing of love, not the exercise of power. So my question to us is, where does your allegiance lie? Who is your king? Are you your, the king in your own life? Society, your culture, your religious practices? How many times have I made religious practices my king? How many times have I been ungracious to my family because of my devotion to church practice? How many times? Where does your allegiance lie? And here's a good question to ask. Is what do you fear? That which you ultimately fear is the thing that ultimately has power over you. That which you ultimately fear is the thing that ultimately has power over you. They, they ask this question of people who get tortured. Many Christians have become martyrs of the years and they ask the question like, how, like how do people go through torture and you not fear your, capture, your captives? And it comes down to this thing, is that they don't have power over them. They may be hurting their bodies, but they don't ultimately have power. What do you fear? Do you fear being an outcast in your family? Do you fear someone thinking you're not perfect? Do you fear the law? What do you ultimately fear? And that thing you ultimately fear is the thing that has power over you. How do you know where your allegiance lies? It's where your fear lies, in one sense. But in the kingdom of God, what does John say? He says, perfect love casts out all fear. Christ's perfect love, giving himself for us, making the way, is the way that we live a life without fear. 
It's about moving our allegiance. It's about shifting our allegiance. It's about recognizing the one who ultimately should be king in our lives. Does that make sense? Can we close? Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. As the disciples said, as the early church said, as church history tells us, the church says, we will have no king but you, Jesus. For you, Christ, our Lord. And Lord, we want to give our allegiance to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We want to move it out of the domain of self and selfishness. We want to move it to to you, for you to be the recognized king in our lives. I think of Paul as he says that prayer, for it is Christ who works all things for the good of those who love him. It is Christ who is always at work seeking the good of his people. I thank you, Lord, that you, your Authority is an authority that always brings about human flourishing. The leper, the outcast, the unclean gets welcomed in. The tax collector, the sinner, the broken get welcomed in. Those who are weary and tired get welcomed in. You, God, are the king who welcomes us in day after day. Week after week, no matter what we've gone through, you draw us to yourself, Lord. And I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray for us as Harbor City, Lord, that you would help us become a people that are more aligned to you than we are to South Africa, than we are to ourselves, than we are to even Harbor City. We want to be more aligned to you than we are to our cultures, to our families, to everything, Lord. We want to be more aligned, give our allegiance to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.